to the New Testament, to the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to continue working our way through Paul's letter to the Church of God in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. We'll look tonight at 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. Paul, as we've seen, has been addressing a number of big issues found in this church that he was able to help plant in the city of Corinth. He's addressed their love of worldly wisdom and human philosophy and rhetorical flair in chapters 1 and 2. He's addressed their divisiveness, the divisions within the body in chapter 3. He's had to defend his own ministry and humility and contrast that with the arrogant views of leadership found in chapter 4. He's tackled sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6, and he's taught as well about how a Christian is to relate to the pagan world. And now in chapter 7, he's answering their questions about marriage and about singleness. Is singleness a problem that needs solving? Or is singleness to be preferred? Is it a more spiritually mature state, as as some are arguing in Corinth? And in that case, is marriage then a thing that ought to be avoided as spiritually inferior or less mature? And if that's the case, should I then dissolve my marriage when I come to faith? That way I could be undivided in my devotion to the Lord. Or perhaps even, as some would argue, I can stay married but just abstain from all of the marital duties of intimacy and instead provide spiritual celibacy for myself so that I can be singularly devoted to the Lord without doing the sinful thing of divorcing my spouse. These are the kinds of things that were swirling around that Paul was seeking to address. And the answers to these questions can't be given in a simplistic way. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach to these matters. And Paul's language in this passage makes this clear. You'll notice in our passage a somewhat un-Pauline-like transition in his language. Language indicating a lot of caution. He uses phrases like, I think. It's my judgment. I would want the person to. One should do as he pleases. These phrases indicate not that Paul was unclear as to what holiness looks like in this life. Rather, we should interpret Paul's caution as an indication of the complexity of these issues and the importance of making things lawful that are law and not making law things that are not dictated in the law. These are matters of prudence and wisdom, and as such, they belong in the category of charitable Christian liberty. It's a topic we'll get to in chapter 8. This is the domain of a biblically informed conscience. Further complicating the interpretation of this particular passage is the social setting in which the Corinthian believers found themselves. For example, verse 21 of this chapter, we looked at it last week. Paul addresses those who were slaves at the time of their conversion. The intersection of Roman slavery with Roman marriage laws was a complicated place. Slaves at the time did not have an actual legal marriage according to Roman law. They had something else. Contubernium is what it was called. It was the word to describe their quasi-marriage state between two slaves or between a slave and a free man or a free woman. In short, depending on the situation, the slave owner had legal rights to determine the marital status of their slaves. 
So if you were a slave and you came to Christ, what do you do in those situations? You may not have the right to determine what you do in those situations. So it's complicated. That's the point I'm trying to make. And the reason, because of that, I've decided to take this passage we're going to look at and split it up into two sermons. And Lord willing, I'll begin working through the passage tonight and end with a a, a biblical study of singleness. And then next week, finish that study and land with some practical applications, some observations about marriage and singleness, particularly in the body of Christ today. And so as we look at our text tonight, 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 25, we'll note that Paul is reasoning here from clear theological principles into wise and sensitive practical application. And Lord willing, we'll be able to do the same. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 25. Let's hear the word of our Lord for us this evening. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you from that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as those who were not mourning, and those who rejoice as those who were not rejoicing, and those who buy as if they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as those who had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or the betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and in spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for, you, for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly, properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong... And it has to be. Let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is God's word for us this evening. Let's pray together. Father, you promise us that your word will not return void. Lord, we pray that that would be the case this evening, that you would take these simple human words and that you would send them out, that you would do your will, that you would, through the preaching of your word, bring about the salvation of souls, the edification of saints, the building up of our body, and the glorification of your name. Ask this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Tonight and next week, we will work through this rather big block of text for us in three main points. And you can remember that outline with three words. Remain, remember, and recognize. Remain, remember, and recognize. And we'll see from Paul in verses 25 to 27, our first point, which is this. Remain as you are. Remain as you are. Paul begins this section of text with words that sound initially quite strange to our ears, but they're consistent with language he's used earlier in the passage. Look at verse 25. Now, concerning the betrothed, or literally the virgins in Greek, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. His words here, I have no command from the Lord, are similar to passage, or to phrases he used in verses 10 and verse 12 of this chapter. He's saying, in the earthly ministry of Jesus, the Lord did not directly address these situations. He's saying, I can't go back and quote Jesus on this, but I give you an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy himself. This is coming from me, Paul, but you can count on it because God has mercifully enabled me to know the truth in this matter. And even at the end of the chapter that we read in the final verse, he says, I consider that I also have the Spirit of God. And so at no point in this chapter does Paul intend to say that I'm going to be teaching you something that the Lord is not also speaking about. He's simply saying that I'm teaching you something that I cannot find in the precise scriptural record in the teachings of Jesus. And yet it is no less from the Spirit and no less trustworthy. And so, Paul, what is this apostolically authoritative word that you have for us? It's simple. Remain as you are. You're under no compulsion to change. Remain as you are. Look at verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, this phrase, in view of the present distress, has given more than one biblical commentator an equal level of distress. It could be rendered in light of the present necessity. But what does that mean? Is Paul referring to some pressing issue within the Corinthian church or within the city at large? Maybe. Some think that Paul was referring to a food shortage at the time in Corinth, which is historically, we can locate that in, church, in, uh, in secular history. And thus, This food shortage was pressing on people, giving them social pressure not to marry so that you wouldn't be burdened with feeding a wife and children in a time when food is scarce. It's possible. Or does Paul mean present distress to refer to the more general pressures of living as a married or a single person in this present evil age, in this age before the return of Christ? Again, scholars disagree. I tend to think it's the latter point. But I don't think that it makes a ton of difference in the final application. Paul's main point is clear. Stay as you are. If you're single, you can remain single. If you're married, you can stay married. Further, the interpretation of this passage gets a little more complicated depending on how you translate the term virgin or betrothed. Verse 25. The ESV translates it betrothed. It's the word parthenos, which It's their interpretation of how to apply that Greek word. But how you interpret it makes a difference. For example, if a young woman 
who's betrothed, if that young woman along with her fiancé is being pressured by some troublemakers within the church to break off the engagement, you can see the problem. If I'm engaged, how am I to apply Paul's principle of remain as you are? Does that mean I need to remain single and therefore break my vow, break my word to this one to whom I'm betrothed and the one whom I love? Or does remain as you are mean remain in my status as a betrothed one and then take it to its normal conclusion, which would be marriage? Paul would answer this question in a way that would frustrate the celibacy zealots within the congregation. Look at verse 27. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she is not sinning. Marriage is not a sin, Paul says. You're free to marry. But if you're, if you're single, neither do you have to be married. If, you, if you're already engaged, you're free to be married. Re- remain as you are, but it's not a sin necessarily for you to change. Each role, singleness, And marriage is a gift, as Paul has said above. It is a divine calling, even, as we saw last week. Now here, I'm going to take a moment to stop and reflect for a moment. Paul's argumentation produced within me a sort of tension as I was reading and studying this text that I couldn't immediately reconcile. And this tension stands behind many of the deficient interpretations of this passage, I think, It's a tension that led me to read and study a lot harder for this sermon than I had in in recent sermons. And the tension is this. How can I reconcile Paul's exhortations in this passage about the benefits of intentional singleness? How can I reconcile those with Genesis 1.28 where God says, Adam, be fruitful and multiply? How can I reconcile these These commendations of singleness in this passage with Genesis 2.18, it's not good for man to be alone. How do I reconcile these things? And so I had to study. And the tension has been lurking in my mind. Thankfully, God led me to, to several really good resources. One was a book called Redeeming Singleness, which is a biblical theology of singleness by a guy named Barry Danilak. And it's really good. One of the best books I've read in a couple of years. And he helped me answer some of these questions as it relates to the themes of singleness and children, offspring, progeny, um, marriage, those themes throughout the Bible. And with much help from him and a couple of other sources, I want to do something a little different tonight. And I want to spend the rest of this sermon and a little bit of next week's sermon looking at some of these themes as they unfold across the canon. Because how you put these themes together makes a big difference. If you do it wrong, you're going to tell people you're in sin for not marrying. You're going to tell people you're in sin for not having children. If you do it wrong, you're going to tell singles you are not enough. You are suboptimal. You are not what you should be. And so we want to get this right. We want to uh, make explicit the theology that is underneath Paul's argumentation in 1 Corinthians 7. That's what I want to do. I want to dig deeper, not merely to say what is he saying, but how is he getting there? Because how he gets there makes a difference. And so, in order to have a biblical framework on marriage and singleness, where should we start? Well, we start at the beginning. 
We go back to Genesis. And I want to build this theology of singleness and marriage looking at the beginning first. God created the heavens and the earth, we are told. And on the fifth day, God blesses the birds and the animals that he made. And he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. On the sixth day, he blesses man. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 1.28. And I want you to notice this theme of divine blessing being tied to fruitfulness and multiplying. This command... To be fruitful and multiply sometimes is called the creation mandate along with subduing and having dominion over the earth. And we'll come back to that. But in Genesis 2, we see that Adam has no helper fit for him. And so in verse 18, God says it's not good for man to be alone. God creates Adam a wife and they become one flesh. And thus marriage is something necessary for Adam to physically carry out his creation mandate of being fruitful and multiplying. Significantly, this same creation mandate, be fruitful, multiply, was given again. Noah, right after the flood, Noah gets off the boat. He's like this new Adam in a newly washed creation. And what does God say? Genesis 9 Verse 1, verse 7, God blesses Noah and his sons, and he says, Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Later, we can fast forward a little bit for a second. Genesis 35, God blesses Jacob. He renames him Israel, and he says, I am the Lord Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Genesis 35, 11. So this theme of God blessing and fruitfulness and multiplying is permeating God's interaction with the patriarchs. Blessing, physical fruitfulness in the form of offspring are being tied together in the minds of God's people. Then, in God's dealings with Abraham... Specifically, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, God ties together the expectations of blessing, of future offspring, of inheritance, and of a name. Blessing, offspring, inheritance, and a name. And I won't read the text, but you can look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and see that God promises to Abraham that his offspring will become a great nation, that he will be blessed that he will be given a great name, that all the families of the earth will be blessed through him. And the promise of this blessing is tied not only to a man of God, but to the whole earth through the production of physical offspring, through a promised seed. And then in the following chapters, God goes on to promise Abraham an inheritance of land that would be possessed by his seed, by his offspring. He even calls it an eternal and everlasting possession, an everlasting inheritance, Genesis 17, 8. And so these promises of blessing, offspring, land, inheritance, they're all being swirled around together. And they're repeated again, not only to Abraham, but to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob. And so if you're struggling to see how all this is relevant... Hang with me. Don't, don't, don't fall off the train just yet. It's relevant to Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's relevant to us, as the New Testament will make clear very soon. And so we're moving ahead from the Abrahamic covenant 
to the leadership of God's people under Moses. And we can begin to see under Moses why the Jewish understanding was that faithfulness to God meant you had to be married and you had to have children. And how singleness and childlessness under Moses meant in some measure God's displeasure with you. For example, Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 12, God tells Israel that these themes that we've been talking about are not only tied together, but that faithfulness necessitated obedience in these areas. Okay, here's what God says, Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 12. And because you listen to these rules, and because you keep them, and because you do them, the Lord your God will keep the covenant with you, and the steadfast love he swore to your fathers. He will love you. He will bless you. He will multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb, and increase the womb of your herds, and the young of your flock, and the land that he swore to give your fathers. You will be blessed among God's people, among all peoples, and they shall not Male nor female be barren among your livestock. And so under Moses, God is explicitly tying together obedience to God with the promise of marriage and fruitfulness, particularly fruitfulness of the womb. Conversely, Deuteronomy 28, we hear the covenantal curses. God says, if you will not obey my voice, and you will not do the commandments and the statutes I give you today. Then all these curses shall come upon you. Cursed shall you be in your city. Cursed shall you be in your field. That's everywhere. All of the promised land. Cursed shall be your basket, your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. And the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. And so God says, even in the next chapter, Deuteronomy 29... That anyone who is unfaithful, who goes after in their heart false gods, the gods of the pagans around them, this person will have his name blotted out from among heaven. And so under the Mosaic Covenant, the Israelites saw the utmost importance for every Israelite to marry and to beget offspring. Because those offspring were the necessary demonstration of covenantal faithfulness and blessing. And by extension, they served as validation of his or her obedience to the covenant. To be a faithful Jew was to be married and to have children. Furthermore, the presence of offspring, of children, was necessary to perpetuate your family's name and your inheritance in the land. If someone did not have an heir, if they didn't have any children, then their family's name and their inherited plot of land in the promised land would be gone forever. That's part of why being barren was such a curse. You had no name. You had no inheritance. Think about Ruth. Ruth and Naomi. Why was it such a big deal for Boaz to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer? It wasn't to save Ruth from loneliness though it did that. It wasn't to save Ruth from poverty, though it did that. Boaz was providing Ruth, and by extension Naomi, an heir. An heir who would be able to inherit Naomi's land and thus be able to perpetuate the name of Naomi's clan. Without that heir, her name and her clan's name would be blotted out 
from Israel, gone forever. Blessing, fruitfulness, inheritance, and name are all coming into sharper focus as we move along the Bible. Indeed, given the massive importance placed on marriage and offspring in Israel, it's not surprising that we read nowhere in the Old Testament that I'm aware of, of any person who remained single voluntarily. Can you think of one? We do have, for example, the prophet Jeremiah, who was called by God to remain single. Jeremiah 16, we see God tells Jeremiah not to take a wife. Why? So he could be devoted? No, because his wifelessness was to be a visible sign of God's impending judgment on Israel. Singleness, particularly fruitlessness of no offspring, was a sign of judgment. Jeremiah's life was to be a living sermon illustration that Israel had broken God's law, and consequently, Jeremiah's lack of offspring was to model God's judgment on his people because they would soon become bereft of their offspring through plague and sword and famine. Jeremiah's singleness was a visible reminder of God's coming judgment. And Jeremiah, a man raised in this culture that prized marriage and offspring, lamented his calling. Jeremiah 11, he's he's lamenting that his, quote, tree and his fruit would be no more. That his name would be, quote, remembered no more. There are other examples we could look at too. We could look at how God's covenant with David promises an heir who would be on the throne forever. And what will he be given? An everlasting name. He'd be over a kingdom forever, an eternal place of inheritance and blessing. And so as we move, we see these themes sharpening, narrowing in their scope. The promises of God are aiming. They're aiming at someone. They're aiming at the coming Messiah. Before we leave the Old Testament, one more passage worthy of reflection, and it gives us hope. So if you're despairing, don't don't despair much longer. Hope. Even though Israel was not faithful to the covenant, Even though she had earned for herself all of the covenantal curses of barrenness, of rejection from the land, of her name being blotted out from among heaven, God does not break his promise to Abraham. God remains faithful. Indeed, he abounds in mercy despite Israel's unfaithfulness. For example, Isaiah 56. God paints a picture of restoration and hope around a surprising character around a eunuch a eunuch someone that's physically maimed in a way that they cannot procreate they cannot have offspring and because their bodies were defaced mosaic law excluded such person from the assembly of the lord and therefore from the covenantal blessings it's a big deal when philip is ministering to the ethiopian eunuch in acts chapter 8 that's a big deal They couldn't come into the tabernacle. They could not come into the temple. They could not fully worship God. They couldn't be full partakers of the Israelite community. Indeed, because they had no ability to bear offspring, they had no hope of their name lasting. Their name ended when they died. They had no hope of a legacy, no hope of an an inheritance beyond this life. But what does God do in Isaiah 56? God promises something special. He promises to the eunuchs 
and to the foreigners, that's us, Gentiles, something wonderful. He says, Isaiah 56, 5, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Rather than being cut off from the worship of God and cut off from the hope of offspring and cut off with no hope for a name or a legacy, God instead promises to take the eunuch, the barren one, and the Gentile and give them a new name, a name that sons and daughters could never produce, an an everlasting name. And that's what's promised to come. And all of these promises are important, as we shall soon see. But we still have our tension. Let's move to the New Testament. and We can begin to see how God ties together these themes of offspring and inheritance and a name. And I hope that you're still tracking with me, because this next step is the difference between answering well our original question, our original tension, and messing it up. I think this is a key step, a key difference in several theological systems. So we want to think well about what is happening. Because if we do, we will be better able to put our whole Bibles together. Turn with me to Galatians. Galatians chapter 3. Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Paul will teach us how to think about important things like offspring, promise of blessing, inheritance. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 16. Galatians 16 may be, for some of you, a paradigm-shifting verse. It certainly was for me when I understood its implications. Paul says... Now the promises were made to Abraham, so we're back in Genesis 12, Abrahamic covenant. God made promises to Abraham and to his offspring. Paul says it does not say and to his offsprings, to his seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So when God in Genesis 12 is making a covenant with Abraham, and he promises him, you and your offspring, he's saying, your offspring, Christ, your seed, Christ. The promises made to Abraham were not made to all of the physical offspring of Abraham. They were made to one specific offspring, one specific seed, Jesus Christ. And this is a radical claim that the Abrahamic promises were not ultimately to be fulfilled through the physical Jewish nation but through Abraham's son, Jesus Christ. The promise given to Abraham that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed, that promise was not mediated through the Jewish nation's commitment to Mosaic law, but solely through Christ's atoning death. That's why he says in verse 13, look at verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Christ is the means of blessing. Paul's statement here is the culmination of God's promised seed of the woman. That promise made first in Genesis 3.15. 
that promised seed of Abraham, the promised seed of Isaac, the promised seed of Jacob. Christ is the fulfillment of what Isaiah would say later about the shoot that would come from the root of Jesse. Christ is the promised son of David who would be given an everlasting name, who would sit on the throne forever. Praise be to God that Christ is the faithful son that died in the place of a terribly sinful people. Even though the first Adam was a sinner, the last Adam was not. Even though Israel was faithless and earned the covenantal curses, the second Israel was faithful to both. He earned the covenantal blessings and faithful to bear the full weight of the covenantal curses. Even though David was a man who shed blood, his son was a man who gave up his own blood. That's the gospel. Indeed, all that is needed to become a partaker of God's blessings is faith. It's not physical lineage that makes one part of a blessed community. It is faith. It is not your own obedience that earns covenantal blessing. It is faith. And when we come to faith, we're born again. We're born of the Spirit, and that second birth makes us Abraham's offspring and therefore heirs of the blessing through union with Christ. That's why Paul can say in Romans 2, 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. But a Jew, a true Jew, Paul says, is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, not by the law. And so to be part of God's blessing through Abraham, you need not to be, not merely, not to be his physical offspring, Rather, you must be circumcised in heart, born of the Spirit, not circumcised of the flesh as was required in the Old Testament. And thus we can see that the blessing of all the nations comes through the seed of Abraham. But it's not merely blessing that comes through Christ. We also have in Christ our inheritance. It's in Christ that Gentiles can become sons of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. This is what Paul goes on to say in the next verses of Galatians 3. It's by faith that we become sons of Abraham. And these sons are heirs according to the promise, verse 18. That is, heirs of an eschatological inheritance, mentioned in verse 18. And this, this language, I, I hope you're recalling, of being co-heirs. Co-heirs with Christ. It's used in Romans 8, 17. In Ephesians 3, 6, it's significant language. Abraham's spiritual offspring, Abraham's heirs, become so by faith. And by believing, can anticipate receiving a due inheritance. But it's not merely a physical plot of land somewhere in Palestine. We have a spiritual inheritance. One that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. And the essence of this paradigm shift represented here. It's the very core of the gospel, and it's got implications for all areas of life, including how we understand singleness and marriage and procreation. For whereas marriage and physical offspring were necessary for the building of the physical nation of Israel, the spiritual people of God are instead building a nation through God's work of spiritual regeneration. Moreover, Whereas marriage and physical procreation were necessary for maintaining one's physical inheritance to the next generation, they're not necessary for preserving one's spiritual inheritance in the eternal kingdom of God. Christ is thus the promised offspring and also the heir of the promised inheritance, bringing God's blessing to the nation. 
It is this offspring of God whom Isaiah depicts so vividly in the shoot and the root of Jesse who brings forth blessing to the world not by means of power and positioning but through the sacrificial death of the suffering servant of our Lord. It's by faith that we have access to the promises and access to the inheritance of God. Now I'm going to have to stop here. There's a few more loose ends to tie together. We're going to do that next week. And we'll have some more practical application on these themes next week. However, I hope you've been encouraged by reflecting again upon the blessings found in Christ and the gospel. We're not bound to works of the law to preserve our blessing. We're not bound to physical fruitfulness tied to our own obedience to the law. Rather, when we come to Christ, we become full heirs of the divine blessings of our Savior. We're co-heirs of eternal life and blessing. We're granted adoption into the household of God. He's taken away from us the curses of the law and instead given us the blessings of the covenant. And we have an internal inheritance, a glorified, resurrected body in which we can reign and rule with Christ over the new heaven and the new earth, enjoying forever the presence of our blessed Savior. However, if you have not yet come to Christ by faith, then know that you are outside of God's covenant. You are under the curses of the law. If you do not repent, then your disobedience, your sinfulness, your selfishness, your anger, your jealousy, your unbelief, all of it will stand as a testament of God's righteousness when he judges you justly on the last day. Do not remain outside of God's grace. Come to him tonight as you have heard. All that is required is faith. All that you must do is believe. And you too can be made a child of God, a son of Abraham, and thus an heir to the promise of life. There's a rather profound song that we sing with our children. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. Are you? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the faithful son, the promised seed who has come and taken away the curse of the law. Help us to believe, and by believing, have life. Lord, make us your people to those who we ought to be. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close tonight.